Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. For ConnectingVets.com, I'm Phil Briggs sitting here with reporter Abby Hartley. Hi. Phil, have you ever heard the story of the Hunley submarine in the Civil War? No, I have not. Oh, listen. Okay. So... The Union was blockading Charleston Harbor. People were starving. The Confederates were like, we need to break this blockade so that we can, you know, get some trade in through here. So they took the boiler out of an old steamship, fashioned it into a hand-cranked submarine, strapped a bomb on a stick to the the bow of it, and sent it out to poke the USS Housatonic with it and blow it up. (laughs) Um, Holy cow. Yeah. And so it would, there were eight crew members aboard and it worked like the, the Houston tonic went down, the blockade was broken, but the Hunley was never seen again. And no one really knew what happened to it because it, it also wasn't near the Houston tonic like you would think it would be. Right. Like where shipwrecks, all the ships involved in this conflict would have sunk in the same exact area. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nowhere to be found. Until uh, in 2000, they raised it out of Charleston Harbor. They found it and they raised it. And the weird thing was, there wasn't the whole damage you thought there would be for a submarine that sank in an explosion. It was right. I mean, totally fine. It was totally fine. It was yeah. There was like some minor blast damage to one part of it, and obviously the hull had been eaten through by rust right. in places because it, it had been underwater for hundreds of years. But not the wreck you think it would be. But the, the okay, here's here's where it gets weird. Okay. So they open it up. All eight of the crew members are still at their stations. They haven't moved. No one made an attempt to escape. Whoa. Uh, the the guy up in the turret looking around, he, he was right next to the only exit, did not make a move towards it. Everyone was sitting there as if they were still alive. Like frozen in time. Exactly. Like, you know, like Pompeii. Yeah, how, yeah. Like those people are still frozen like they were. It was like that. Um, so that's not really what you do if you're in distress, right? If you're suffocating or if you've been grievously injured, that's not what you do. You try to escape, but like the yeah, right, like, a, like a ship taking on water, you think mm-hmm. they'd be swimming towards an exit. They'd mm-hmm. be trying to work on a hatch, trying mm-hmm. to get out. You're saying they were just frozen, sitting there at their desk, looking through the eyeglass, looking. Yes, hands still on the crank. Like everything was as it was in life. The hatches were closed. The ballast was still on board. Nothing. Nothing had been attempted to Whoa. try to save the submarine, which is part of the reason that it was so far away from the the Houstonic is because it hadn't sank; it had just sort of drifted. Question is, how did the crew die? That's not normal. That's that's really spooky. How did the crew die? And so I talked to this scientist at Duke University, Rachel Lance. Okay. And now she's a professor at UNC Chapel Hill and she does she just finished her PhD at Duke and she used her knowledge of sort of blast physics and blast injuries uh, that she worked on because she was a civil servant with the Navy for nine years. Um, and she solved this mystery. She figured out how that crew died. Wow. 
and figured out how this crew died circa 1860 whatever yeah wow <laughs> that's crazy okay so that's what the interview we're getting ready to hear is yeah that's her she's really cool nice how did you get involved in sort of like the Hunley mystery and trying to figure out what exactly happened to the crew? Because it seems like, from what I can tell, it's sort of outside of what you were doing originally with your research. It was a little bit outside of it, but it was pretty related. Um, it actually wasn't completely intentional how the project got started. <laughs> so basically what had been happening is I'd been working as a civil servant for the Navy for several years. And they offered me the opportunity to go back to um, graduate school to get a PhD. So before I'd been working on underwater breathing systems, I was always interested in lungs and the way that pulmonary physiology works. And when I came back to school, I began working in the lab with my advisor. Uh, his name is Dale Bass, and he's frequently worked on military-related projects. So half of his lab looks at blast-related injuries. Now, all of the other students really work on blast-related injuries in air, but since I'd already had a strong background with underwater physiology, he was really encouraging in letting me start working on underwater-related blast injuries. So one day he kind of just wandered into my office and asked if what I had been doing, um, which was looking at unprotected divers that were free-swimming in the water— could in any way be applied to the submarine Hunley. So from there, things just sort of snowballed on their own. Um, we ended up looking at the problem, and the way that the skeletal remains were positioned inside the boat really looked reminiscent of a blast injury. Um, from that then on, it was just a question of how to test that theory. And yeah, this is this is so interesting because I I'm from South Carolina, uh, and I remember growing up like. It was always this big mystery, like what happened to the crew of the Hunley, especially why were they, why didn't they at least try to escape? They were all still in the positions, right? Like that's really creepy. Exactly. It's it's really creepy. And I think that's why most people have such a fascination with the boat is because when something like this happens, we all sort of have the ability to empathize with the crew and we want to be able to imagine what their final moments were like. But in this case, we still had no idea what killed them or or why the submarine sank. And that tends to have a fascination because even though we might not think about it consciously, people are still aware that their physiology is the same as those crewmen. Mm -hmm. So um, what happened to them, in theory, could happen to us. And that's why I think people find this story of the submarine so engaging. I, I, I totally agree. Um, I mean, it's been a mystery for, for years. Uh, and to that end, I don't want to like make you get too technical, but I am curious about why this specific kind of explosion of this kind of wave would have killed them the way that it did. Like, uh, it just seems like it was instantaneous. So basically, this one caused fatalities because of a combination of factors. So it, there was no way they could have known this at the time. Blast physics wasn't even really a science back then. Mm -hmm. But now we have the ability to look back retrospectively and see how the combination of factors really caused a fatal scenario. So first, they had this exceptionally large torpedo. It was 135 pounds of black powder. So it was about the size of a beer keg, right? <laughs> um, it's huge. That's so massive. originally they had designed the ship to tow it behind them on kind of a lanyard. And that would have also provided some degree of safety. But because that had problems with entanglement, it was moved to this spar off the bow of the boat. 
This bar was only 16 feet long. So this beer keg of powder is 16 feet from the submarine. And then on top of it, it's positioned at a downward angle. So having the torpedo nearer the surface, as they'd done with some prior boat models in training, would have provided a protective effect. So they took the large torpedo, they moved it closer, and then they moved it downward. So together, that's like a perfect storm. And then on top of it, this submarine in particular had an extremely thin hull. It was only three-eighths of an inch thick uh, because it had been built out of the uh, recovered boiler of a steamship. Really? Yes. Yeah. So it was built in Alabama, and they used the boiler of a steamship that they had recovered for the for the metal. Um, and it was already a similar shape. So um, that's why you don't see these cases with anything more modern. So, for example, in World War One, there are accounts um, from submariners who describe vaguely what it's like to be near a depth charge. And by near, I mean like 60 or 70 feet away. Not 16. Six, exactly. And they're still describing it as like a deeply disturbing experience. Um, but their submarines by that point in time had much, much thicker hulls. So they were built to withstand pressure. And because they were built to withstand pressure, that also then started protecting them from the blast. Yeah. Right, because like they're not getting as much of the wave action, I guess, into their own bodies. Exactly. Well, yeah, exactly. It's it's like being in a hotel room. Like blast transmits very similarly to sound. So if you're in a mm-hmm. cheap hotel room and you have really thin walls, you're going to hear a lot more than if you're in that expensive hotel room with the insulation. That's a great metaphor. Yeah, <laughs> so, um, well, that that's fascinating. Um, and I was also wondering what it's been like because it seems like you've done this sort of entirely on your own with without much support from the people who are already doing scholarship on the Hunley and were you as was ever a point where you felt like I'm not getting a lot of support like I might just give up on this uh I might do something else for my thesis more related to what I was originally doing or was it always just sort of like yes this is what I'm supposed to be doing I'm gonna figure this out um, so I once I started the project, I tend to be kind of a persistent personality. Um, so <laughs> once I started the project and every piece of data that came in seemed to support my theory, that really encouraged me to continue no matter what. Um, and my advisor also is a huge history fan. So when you're a graduate student, if you have the support of your advisor, then that that is really the biggest the biggest question <laughs> on whether or not you should continue with that as your dissertation topic. Yeah, I guess more more broadly, I was wondering how did you end up becoming a civil servant with the Navy in the first place? <laughs> um, you're gonna laugh about that. Um, so I had done my bachelor's and master's degrees at the University of Michigan, mm-hmm. and they were in biomedical engineering. So I was always looking at pulmonary physiology and respiratory physiology and how the lungs worked. And I, at the same time, was a really avid scuba diver. Uh, so when I graduated and it was time to get a real job, I wanted to find a way to incorporate my hobby into my work. So. Everything from diving that I had been reading, all this research was coming out of this Navy base in Panama City, Florida. So um, I literally moved down there and I was working remotely for a law firm and sending them my resume repeatedly until they offered me a job. (laughs) Yeah, like I said, I'm I'm a little bit persistent sometimes. (laughs) So 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but it worked. It did work. And um, I recently left there for personal reasons just a couple of weeks ago, but mm-hmm. I was there for almost nine years and it was honestly just an amazing experience. I loved working with the divers and I loved working for the DOD. I always felt like I had more of an accomplishment at the end of the day because I'd, I'd accomplished something. I'd help someone fulfill their mission or I'd help someone be better protected while they were doing their mission. Or e- even sometimes you just made someone's day slightly easier or their back hurt slightly less because you built a better piece of gear. So that's great. Uh, and what are you up to these days? These days, I am teaching one class as an adjunct professor at the University of North Carolina. I'm working on a military-related dive project with Duke as a collaboration, and I am writing a book about the Hunley. So I can't wait for that to come out. That's going to be awesome. Oh, thank you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm pretty excited about it. It was. I think it was. Um, I've gotten. Pardon me. That was awkward. Um, I've gotten a lot of questions about how the science was done and how I physically did it all. And so that's kind of why I wanted to write it all down into a book is to describe in real life how these things are actually accomplished. A lot of times you see these uh, television shows where it's 45 minutes and they've completed an entire cancer research trial by the end of it. And that's that's not really the reality uh, the reality is like it's 40 degrees and the wind is blowing so hard, your screwdriver is rolling away and things like that. So, um, yeah, that's part of what I wanted to do. And then in addition, tell the story of the history of the boat itself. Because it is it is fascinating. And you even you built your own version of the Hunley, right? Uh, I didn't physically build it. But yeah, there was a, it was a local artist. Uh, his name is Trip Jarvis, but he is specializes in metalworking. So he specializes in metalworking large shapes. And he and I sat down, I brought him the engineering technical drawings, and he came up with a couple different versions. We went through a little iterative process, but yeah, he was the one that built the scale model. And it's it sounds like you had to sort of reverse engineer the specs for the submarine because you couldn't access the actual thing. Is that right? Um, yeah, that was part of the story. So um, when I first started looking at the project, it was difficult to get data on it. Um, so I wasn't able to get a lot of the direct measurements. So some of the measurements are from publications about the Hunley and then other measurements, I would have to look at their published laser scans or look at their published documents and measure off of the pictures. That's wild. <laughs> yeah. A lo- the crucial measurements, I made sure that I had multiple sources of to course. validate it. Yes. But that was, it was an interesting month. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess uh, more on the history side of things, do we do we know anything about the sailors who were on the Hunley? Sort of like not maybe not in their names, but sort of who they were and if they knew if what they were about to do was basically a suicide mission in an old boiler from a different ship. We know some about some of them. Um, some of the crewmen we know very little about. One or two of them, there's still some questions about their names, but others we have a lot of information. So, for example, the lieutenant of the Hunley, um, Lieutenant George Dixon, there's a lot known about him because he was an avid pen pal with his, I would say, romantic interest, um, a woman named Queenie. So there's like this famous story about she gave him a gold coin for good luck and he was carrying it in his pocket and he got shot in the gold coin. Um, Right. (laughs) Exactly. So they found the bent coin 
with the gunshot deflection in the submarine with his remains. And it had been engraved with um, the words, my life preserver and some other things. So, yeah. So for him, right, (laughs) right. It's, it's sort of this amazing story because if you wanted to write a work of fiction, nobody would find it plausible, but it's real life. Like this is actually what happened. So, um, but yeah, so things like him, we know, we don't really know a lot about their motivations before they got in the boat. None of them really left any records or diaries. They did have two prior complete crews that were in the boat and it sank during training missions, but those were not because of blast. It was just because of operational difficulties with the submarine. Mm -hmm. So I think like any soldier in combat, they knew that they were undertaking a mission with risks, but they definitely would not have had the blast physics knowledge to fully understand that this phenomenon was possible. So. Yeah, and I imagine that also just hand cranking a submarine by candlelight with a bomb strapped to the front of it, like probably you know what you're getting yourself into perhaps yeah. on some level. Exactly, like they knew on some level that there was a risk to using that particular submarine because of the previous crews. Based on the documentation from other people, it seems like most people suspected the risk would be to the submarine walls itself. Um, but realistically, like, it took us 150 years to figure out what killed them. So in the 1860s, there's absolutely no way they would have known that that blast transmission was a possibility. Mm-hmm. I mean, so. I didn't know until about yesterday. <laughs> Thanks. Um, I guess sort of my, my last question would be, where do you think the Hunley kind of fits into the 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 history of sort of our attempts to use submarines? Like, do you think it was a significant attempt? Or do you think that uh, maybe like the turtle, you know, another like one person submarine would have been more? Or uh, if you think, you know, does, is the Hunley sort of the first attempt we had at a military submarine? I think that's a pretty accurate way to put it. Um, I think the Hunley was definitely one of the more significant attempts at early submarines. So the turtle, as you know, used during the American Revolution was considered the first submarine overall. But it didn't, the, the, the turtle didn't really accomplish its goals. So there are even some people who have theorized that based on the design of the submarine, the person piloting it may never have really gotten as close to the enemy ships as he claimed. And I, I haven't specifically studied that, but there are, some, there are some doubting accounts of the abilities of that vessel. The Hunley, I think a lot of people look at it because it was hand-cranked and it was built out of a boiler. So the natural inclination is to compare it to modern-day submarines, where obviously it falls really short. But for the time, it was really remarkable and incredibly well-designed. So I think that that is the most significant thing about it, is that they had no submarine combat knowledge, and they still managed to anticipate a lot of the design aspects that would be really critical One of the big things that I was surprised by when we were doing the testing was we had built the scale model. And the first time we put it in the water, it was incredibly easy to move back and forth. So yeah, and I I didn't expect that. I expected it to be a lot more of a struggle, but the design of this boat is really streamlined. Um, You could pull it back and forth across the pond from a great distance with almost no effort. So it just kind of goes to show that like this thing was was better developed than we can give it credit for if we compare it to 2017 submarines. 
Not bad considering it was like basically scrap metal. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> so. But it's, it's been such a delight to have you on. Uh, I can't wait until the book comes out. Do you know, do you have a timeline of when that's going to be maybe? Um, so I'm working, I have a literary agent and we're working through the proposal. We're helping to submit the proposal to publishers this week. So yeah, sometime next year, hopefully. So, Well, I'll look out for it. Thank you so much. That was Rachel Lance, solver of the Hunley mystery. I'm Abby Hartley for ConnectingVets.com. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 